Welcome to the Super Onion Brothers Podcast. I'm Matthew. I'm joined here today with my show host, Colt. And I'd just like to remind you guys to go like us on Facebook and try to keep up with our updates. And that's where we can give you guys, you know, what's going on with us and the show and everything. And another reminder, please go give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so yet. And I'd also like to thank the listeners uh, for, you know, creating our little bit of our little fan base we have. I mean, we've, we've already got several hundred downloads so far and you know we just started this podcast in january we really appreciate you guys and you guys spreading the word and everything uh, uh, we just really really appreciate you well on the last episode we talked about limited atonement and mm-hmm. this episode we're going to look a little bit more limited atonement and then we're going to move right into some atonement theories so you know maybe you've never ever heard of atonement theories before and this might be something that's brand new to you, or maybe you're probably rolling your eyes right now because you don't have any interest in this at all. But we're going to explore this for a moment and look at some of the Arminian points of uh, atonement theory theology. Now, I've got a Brazilian bean dark roast coffee this morning. Colt, what do you got keeping up with tradition? What do you got today? <laughs> uh, today, I'm uh, drinking Starbucks House Blend. It's a medium, sort of on the darker end of medium. Uh, made in a pour over. Awesome. I just did some lazy Keurig uh-huh. coffee today. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start off lazy with lazy Keurig uh, coffee is necessary. Say what? So lazy Keurig coffee is necessary sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Let's start off with what Jacob Arminius said on the atonement. We kind of saved this for this episode. So let's look at let's look at this this episode, what he said, and then we'll move on from there. So first of all, what did he say? Well, he's got some pretty good quotes, and I'm pulling this from Roger Olson's Armenian Theology, Myths and Realities. You can find this on Amazon. Excellent, excellent mm-hmm. overview of Armenian theology. And he has a quote in here on page 226 from Arminius, and it says. It is manifest and well from these passages, as from the uses of Scripture, that by the world, world, by the word world, in those places is meant simply the whole body of mankind. But in my opinion, there is no place in all Scripture in which it can be shown beyond beyond all controversy that the word world signifies the elect. Christ is said to have died for all, Hebrews 2 and 9 and elsewhere. He's called the savior of all men, especially of those who believe, which expression cannot without twisting an injury be explained respecting conversation in this life. And he also says in another place, scripture nowhere says this, nay, it says contrary to this in very many places. And what he's doing is he's arguing against that Calvinist idea that the word world in the scripture, when it's speaking of Christ dying for the world, simply means the elect. And I mean... Mm -hmm. Isn't that basically just what we talked about in the last episode? It's just in the words of the Dutch reformer. Right. It's yeah. Arminius is really logical. I like the way he thinks. Cause I mean, he takes, takes context into account. He looks at multiple patches passages. He says, well, you know, if world means world in this passage, then it probably should mean world in this passage instead of something like the mysterious elect or something like that. But that's, yeah, I, I agree with it. <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things uh, we both appreciate when we read Arminius is that he is just, he's got a logical thought process that is analytical and he takes into context the scriptures and I like the way he mm-hmm. approaches the text. 
the thing I appreciate about Arminius is that he rarely looks at one text without quoting another text. And he really obviously uh, puts into practice the idea that scripture interprets scripture. And even in the quote that, uh, that you just read, he says Hebrews chapter two and other places. It's, it's not, he doesn't look at things in a vacuum, which That's is right. really cool. That's right. I mean, we all approach the text of scripture in a vacuum in some way or another. Right, right. You know, everybody brings their own presuppositions and you're fooled if you don't think so. Right. <laughs> just just like literally the other day, I was um, speaking with someone and they got nine kinds of bent out of shape because we were talking about, you know, theological terms such as Trinity mm-hmm. and, you know, perichoresis and things like that and they got completely bent out of shape because you know those words aren't contained in scripture and i just need i i've got the bible and the bible alone well guess what no you don't you've got the bible and your own presuppositions when you approach the text you don't have the bible and the bible alone none of right. the, that. the phrase the phrase i have the bible and the bible alone is a theological presupposition absolutely it is <laughs> No, you've got the Bible and just for example, you've got the Bible, your own presuppositions about the text based on your denomination, then your own presuppositions about the text based on the country you live in, then based upon the time period you live in. I mean, you all kinds of things go into it that you don't even realize. That's what just cracks me up about people sometimes. <laughs> they think they think their interpretation is the purest. Exactly. Now, I will be clear. I do believe the the Bible is our source of truth, is our source of faith and practice. But I'm not... What's the word? I'm not too blind or too proud to know that I have my own presuppositions that I'm bringing to the Bible, even though, yes, in theory, I just believe the Bible and that's it. But I, I know that I'm influenced by other things I know that I have interpretive lenses that I read the Bible through. That's just, that's just how it is. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, what we're doing right now on this show before we get off on that rabbit trail is that we're coming to the text, looking at what Christians who have gone before not before us have said concerning these theological teachings from the word of God. Mm-hmm. So we're not just approaching it as, you know, this is Matt and Colt's interpretation. We're looking <laughs> through history of Christian theology, and we'll look at some other, I mean, we'll go even farther back in a moment, but we're going to look through the history of Christian theology and see that what are we doing? Because, you know, there have been people before us. We are not the first generation to ever approach the text. So moving on off that rabbit trail, let's look at uh, what Arminius said concerning his view of the atonement. So what we're going to move into this episode as we continue on is what atonement theory should we be, you know, primarily looking at? What, what, where should we lean to? Should we lean into this or what? And let's look at what Arminius said. So he said, there remains with God his right entire to impart those benefits. That's the benefits of the atonement which are by his nature, which he desired from compassion to communicate to sinful men, but justice withstanding could not carry into effect and which now that his justice is pacified by the blood 
and death of Christ, he can actually bestow to whom he thinks fit and under those conditions which he shall prescribe because he, as the injured party, could prescribe the mode of reconciliation, which also he did prescribe consisting in the death and obedience of his own son and because he himself gave us him who was to perform the functions of a mediator for us. Now, that just simply and clearly puts out the fact that God's justice had to be satisfied or pacified, as Arminius puts it, by the blood and death of Christ because he bore our sins. He took our sins. He paid the penalty for those. He did all these things for us. Which some people are a little bit uncomfortable with that idea that there was some sort of satisfaction uh, happening with the Father as Christ was being punished on the cross, but... That word satisfaction there does not necessarily carry along a meaning that God was, you know, that the father, you know, was sitting there looking at the son going, ha ha ha, I'm getting so much pleasure from this. This is fantastic that he's like an evil God that takes pleasure and punishment and all that kind of stuff. But the, the word, like, you know, scripture says it, it, you know, pleased him, pleased God to bruise him. Yeah. It again is not some sick, twisted view of God. It's nope. it's that it satisfied something. God would not be just. God would not be loving if He didn't require a punishment for sin. Um, it's it's part of who He is. He is just, and so there has to be a punishment for sin. And it's not a sick, twisted, evil God who enjoys punishment that sends His Son, sends, you know. God in the flesh to die for us. It's the loving God who who pays the punishment, who takes the price that He requires on Himself. That's right. And one of the issues is that it's been emphasized by certain theologians that this penal satisfaction view is one of God's anger being poured out on His Son and how much He hated Him. And I mean, all these just really dark things written about it. And that's not essentially what this means. Can you still hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. It's harder to do this without pictures. It is much harder to do this, but I can hear you loud and clear. <laughs> okay, good. <clears throat> so that that's Matthew Pinson, who is a very prominent Armenian scholar. He's written several books and, um, a company with other scholars upon this <coughs> the topic of Armenian theology. And he concludes in an article he writes on the atonement and the theology of Jacob Arminius that the theology of the atonement and the understanding of the atonement from Ar- Jacob Arminius's viewpoint is consistent with the pedal satisfaction view of the atonement. That's what Roger Olson comes to conclusion with, I believe. I mean, when, when we look at what Arminius says concerning the atonement, you have to walk away thinking that what what he believed was a penal substitution satisfactory view of the atonement. Right. I mean, any anybody who reads Arminius, and there there's there is admittedly within quote-unquote Arminian circles, a desire to, it seems like, to sort of move away from penal substitution, but 
if you look at anything Arminius wrote regarding the atonement, it is clear. I mean, even the passage that you've read from Arminius already today, that Arminius recognizes that there is punishment happening. There is, you know, that penal satisfaction um, is happening in the text. I mean, you can't can't deny it. That the word penal substitution just means it's a it's a penalty. Yes. There are atonement theories, atonement models that state that Christ was not a penalty, that he was, that it wasn't some sort of exact punishment type thing, and we'll get into those later, but that's obviously not what Jacob Arminius taught, not what he thought, not what, you know, he believed. If you just read him at any length, you find the themes of justice, of penalty, of punishment. It's just, it's clear. I believe it's important for us to be careful when we're looking at the atonement and I don't think it is appropriate theologically for us to point at one or the other atonement view and says, it's this one and no others. This is the view. Everything everybody else says is absolutely wrong, but we are in agreement with Jacob Arminius and most of the reformers in saying that, this penal satisfaction, this satisfaction view, this penal substitutionary view, this to us is the primary function of the atonement. It was to take the sins that humanity had laid against them, deserving of the wrath of God, that Christ would bear those sins on the cross, bear the punishment for those sins in his death, and rise up again in his resurrection for our justification. Right. You know, I didn't even think of it, but this is Easter week. This is a great week to be talking about the atonement. That is very true. I didn't even connect it to... This is the week after Easter we're talking about the atonement. Week before Easter. Well, when this is, ep- when this is released, it's going to ah, be after Easter. See. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing at first, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, what a better time to talk about the atonement. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to read one more Arminius quote, and then we'll move on from him. This is him speaking about the reconciliation to God. Such a covenant could not be contracted between ju- a just God and sinful men, except in consequence of reconciliation, which it pleased God, the offended party should be perfected by the blood of our high priest to be poured out on the altar of the cross. He who was at once the officiating priest and the lamb for sacrifice poured out his sacred blood and thus asked and obtained for us a reconciliation with God. For Arminius, it wasn't just some, you know, display of God's love on the cross. It wasn't just some picture of who what, what God's love really is. For Arminius, when Christ died on the cross, it was a real thing. His blood was really shed for us. He was really punished for us for the purpose of our reconciliation to God. Right. It's literally an exact punishment for our sins. And that's the the biggest difference between uh, penal substitutionary atonement and other substitutionary models of the atonement is that with the penal substitution view, uh, it is an exact punishment that he's not just a simple stand-in or a representative of humanity or anything like that, but it's 
literally paying for the sins of the world. That's right. It is not just some picture of, of God looking like he's doing something for humanity. He actually mm -hmm. did something for humanity in the cross of Christ. <clears throat> so moving on, after Arminius, there came this guy named Hugo Grotus. Now Grotus came up with the governmental theory of the atonement. Colt, would you like to explain the governmental theory? Just briefly? Oui. Um, <laughs> do you want me to try to do it? Yeah, you go ahead and do it. I have a rough idea, but that's... Well, first of all, you need to understand when you're looking at Grotus that he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't a pastor. You're talking about a lawyer, a statesman, and basically like a, this politician kind of figure. And in the governmental theory of atonement, Christ did not suffer the actual penalty for our sins. He suffered a substitute for penalty for sins. It, it was like, it was a provisionary substitute for penalty and not the actual punishment for sin. It mm -hmm. was like, it's kind of like this picture and this, and when Christ was on the cross, it satisfied the governmental needs for God to be able to extend that atonement to mankind. It, it's a very interesting little understanding of the way God works with humanity. It's this governmental, like God has this universal cosmic government, and then Christ dies. He bore a punishment, but he did not bore the punishment, which was due to us in our sin, as we said, with what Arminius believed. Christ's suffering and death were not um, Christ's suffering and death were the demonstration of justice for the sake of God and his righteousness. So basically what happens is Christ dies on the cross as like a picture to show that, yes, I am God and I am just. Not that Christ actually bore our sins. Now, there are some arguments out there with the governmental view that this is the primary Arminian view of the atonement. That is wrong. That is absolutely yeah, wrong and misinformed. I think, yeah, there there is a bit of a, a trend, I guess, in popular Arminianism to go sort of towards this view if you want it, but it's not not classically Arminian. Just one hundred percent is not. And to read to read another quote from the same uh, Pinson Matthew Pinson article you referenced earlier. Um. He, he begins, he's talking about the approach that many scholars take is that they presuppose what Arminius should think and then therefore read into his writings what they think he thought as far as the atonement goes. That's right. And he says Calvinists and modern Arminians alike do this. And this is a little bit of a lengthy quote, but he says, this is the approach that many scholars have taken towards Arminius regarding the doctrine, his doctrine of atonement. For example, the Calvinist scholar Robert L. Raymond has said that the Arminian theory of atonement is the governmental theory, which denies that Christ's death was intended to pay the penalty for sin. He claims that the governmental theory's germinal teachings are in Arminius. Similarly, well-known Wesleyan Arminian scholar James K. Greider states, a spillover from Calvinism into Arminianism has occurred in recent decades. Thus, many Arminians, whose theology is not very precise say that Christ paid the penalty for our sins, yet such a view is foreign to Arminianism. Now, uh, I'll say I'm not, not, uh, not too well acquainted with that particular Ar Wesleyan Arminian scholar, but 
and I'm I'm sure they've read a lot of Arminius, but I just don't know I don't know where that comes from. Because see the Calvinists the Calvinists quoted beforehand their their uh, criticism is almost accurate of some modern quote unquote Arminians views. But those views are not in line with what Arminius himself taught. And so he goes on to argue throughout the article that neither one of neither of those views, neither of those ideas about Arminius and what he believed about the atonement are true. Um, and there, yes, there Christ was a representative. Christ stood in humanity's in humanity's place, but it's clear from Scripture he was punished for our sins. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, I don't get where he gets that either. You know, that's just, (laughs) that's wild. Um, That article, I'll put it in the show notes for any of the listeners that want to go check out that article. It's a pretty concise little article on the Mm -hmm. overall view of Jacob Arminius' view of the atonement. Really enjoyed reading it. Hopefully you will too. But Grotus, one of the, and here's the thing, Grotus was a follower of Arminian theology and everybody likes to take it and throw everything Grotus said right on Arminius. And it's just not true. It is just not right. true. After this, you know, you've got John Wesley. That's the next prominent uh, figure. And John Wesley, personally, from looking at what he said on the atonement, he, uh, and this is going along with uh, Randy Maddox and his book, Responsible Grace, uh, Wesley's view of the atonement, we're tempted to describe that it's a primarily penal satisfaction view of the atonement, which results in moral influence, purpose, and a ransom effect. Now, speaking of ransom, you're looking at the Christus Victor view of the atonement. Mm-hmm. Christ is victorious. So really, if you wanted to separate and draw a line right between the two, You've got on one side uh, Anselm's penal substitution, and on the other side, you have Irenaeus's ransom victory model of the atonement. And those, personally, from the people I've interacted with, the things I've read, those are the two major divisions on what the atonement does. And with the victory model of the atonement, or Christus Victor, or ransom model, you know, people are like, this is is the model of the atonement. And all this essentially means is that Christ is victorious over the powers of evil, such as Satan, demons, evil itself, sin, death. But the issue is what happens to our sins? Right. Our sins are not forgiven. Our sins are not, we, our sins don't have the penalty paid for them. Right. Christ's blood, in, a, in effect, does nothing for our sins, as the Bible clearly teaches. <laughs> but Christ's death only affects outside influences upon us. Right. I mean, there, there certainly, and as you were saying at the at the beginning of the show, this is not our attempt to say, "Oh, our atonement model is correct, and nobody else has anything right, and we hate all the other models, and they're just nonsense." there's definitely an element of the Christus Victor or the ransom theory of atonement. Absolutely. That is true. Absolutely. I think the, the distinction that I would make personally 
is that yes, I believe the atonement was a penal substitution. Christ was punished for the exact exact cost of our sins. But through that penal substitution, through his, if you want to throw in some governmental ideas as well, through his taking his place as a stand-in for humanity, but as that stand-in taking exact punishment, he became victorious. Right. He did ransom us from the powers of, you know, death, hell, and the grave, and Satan, and all that kind of stuff. He did do that. But that's not the only thing he did. And some people, uh, some who teach penal substitutionary atonement, sort of forget the the power or the the victory over the outside forces that Christ did win for us through his death and resurrection. But that's, again, that's not the only thing he did. He did not just ransom us. Right. He also paid the exact punishment of our sins. So I, I would say that primarily the atonement is a penal substitution, but as a result of that substitution, Christ is victorious. Right. So... If Christ were just a sacrifice, then I would vehemently argue the point that it on, the atonement could only do this or that. However, in Arminian theology, in Wesleyan Arminian theology, Christ is seen as prophet, priest, and king. In his priestly role, he is not only human, but friends, he's also divine. Right. He's perfect. He's not only priest, he's also sacrifice. Right. Because you have the God-man, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, that blood is precious. And that blood is also powerful. And mm -hmm. in his death, it accomplished much more than we probably can express in human words. Mm -hmm. That's why it's so difficult. That's why there's so many arguments on this. Yes, he right. paid the penalty for my sins. But you know what else he did? He won the victory over sin, hell, death, and the grave. He won the victory over Satan. He won all these things. He displayed his righteousness, in a sense, as the governmental theory likes to tell us. He displayed his right. righteousness on the cross. And through that death, he has given us a new life in him so that we can walk in his example by the power of the Spirit. Mm -hmm. That's that moral influence or exemplary model of the atonement also being played into that. So it's not just this, that, this, or that, this, or that. There's more to it, friends. I think primarily, exactly. though, as you were saying, it, it it's penal substitutionary primarily, and under the lens of that, all others are explained. Right, because that's where we, that's where Christ, I mean, again, not to, not to hold on, let me just start that over. Right, because that's where you that's where you sort of have to start with humanity. Is you we've got to we've got to be forgiven, we've got to be sanctified in Christ, we've got to be set apart in Christ before any of the other things can happen, before we can have a you know the moral exemplary view of atonement. Before you can have any of that, we have to be forgiven. Before we can, I mean, through our forgiveness, through our Christ's substitution for us. We can be ransomed. We can be bought. We can be redeemed yep. from the curse. 
through that forgiveness, through the, the new life that we're given in Christ, we, you know, Christ can be victorious and we can be victorious with him. It's just, it all goes together. But just, you, you got to start with the punishment for sins because God is just. And it's, there's a, there's a verse or a passage that we've read before on the show, but I think is an incredibly important passage to understand what was going on at the cross why Christ had to be punished for our sins. That's uh, Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 through 26. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly. Again, He displayed Him, yes, governmental, uh, as a propitiation in His blood through faith, penal substitution. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, and here's the key, so that he would be the so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So he punished Jesus. Again, not not wringing his hands together and saying, "Oh boy, I get to punish somebody," but as a satisfaction, as a a, a necessary requirement, and. He did this to show his justice, to show that because he had passed over sins, because he had not enacted his justice, he had not enacted punishment on those who had sinned. He had to do it on someone. If not, God would be an unjust judge. And he did this so that he would be the justifier, so that he could display his love, so that he could show his love and redeem fallen humanity for no reason, not because he needed us, not because he needed to justify us or needed to save us, but because he desired to, because he loved us. Amen. Which is incredible. Amen. You know, we at my church, we just had Palm Sunday, and I looked at John chapter 12. Mm -hmm. You know, Christ, at that moment when he was entering in Jerusalem, he so could have easily started a revolt just then. Forget the cross, forget my sacrifice, forget my purpose for coming, forget it all. Let's overthrow the Romans and take over Jerusalem. He could have done it that day. Absolutely. Uh, Josephus notes in um, like 66 AD, somewhere around there to Passover feast, there are about 2.7 million people at that Passover. Numbers were probably inflated. He was an ancient historian. However, there were several thousand people there that day that were shouting out hosanna blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord mm -hmm. but christ does not come in on a war horse he enters jerusalem on a donkey echoing mm -hmm. zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 rejoice mm -hmm. o daughter of jerusalem for your your king is coming mounted on a a fowl even the colt of donkey he wasn't coming to bring war. He's coming to bring peace. He was a sacrifice. John chapter 18, right. you flip a few pages right after the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Roman cohorts coming to him. And if you're ever in Israel and you're standing there at the Garden of Gethsemane, you can see the Temple Mount from the Garden of Gethsemane. So as Christ mm -hmm. is praying that that prayer, that prayer we're all very aware of, Father, not my will, but thine. That as that Roman guard is coming to him, you know, you're the first century, it's nighttime, there's no electricity, torches light up the whole area. He was right. up on a mountain. He could see down on that valley as they're coming to him. They didn't sneak up on him. He knew they were coming for him. He knew it. And we also know from Scripture that some of his disciples even had swords. They could have fought him off and let Jesus escape. Right. He could have slipped over that the Mount of Olives and been in Bethany quickly. But he didn't. He laid his life down willingly. You know, mm -hmm. as we look at the testimony of Scripture, I don't see why anyone would try to put that type of God forced Jesus to the cross and Jesus did it unwillingly and God put all of his anger and his punishment on him and kind of thing. From what we see in Scripture, I believe penal satisfaction or penal substitution is consistent with Christ mm -hmm. willingly going to the cross. He joyfully and humbly surrendered obedience. Philippians chapter 2 says it was obedience, and obedience even unto the point of death. That wasn't something the Father imposed on Christ. That was something they decided together in the person or in the uh, unity of the Godhead. So let's look at Wesley real quick, and let's end. As I said earlier, John Wesley is pretty consistent with uh, Jacob Arminius' theology, and just about every single person who looks at the theology of Wesley will conclude that he had some sort of penal satisfaction view of the atonement as his primary view of the atonement. Wesley says, because of the atonement, his sins, all his past sins and thought, word, and deed, speaking of the believer, are covered and blotted out, shall not be remembered or mentioned against him any more than if they had not been. God will not inflict on that sinner what he deserved to suffer because the son of his love has suffered for him. And from the time we are accepted through the blood, through the beloved, reconciled to God through his blood, he loves and blesses and watches over us for good, even as if we had never sinned. That to me, friends, sounds like penal substitution. It sure does. We're reconciled to God through his blood. Not because Christ won some sort of victory over Satan, not because God offered Christ to Satan, as the victory model would say from Arrhenius. Um, it is Christ's sacrifice to God, paying the penalty for our sins in his blood. And this is a consistent Wesleyan Arminian thought. Amen. And if anything, the, the current trend away from penal substitutionary atonement in Arminian, quote unquote, Arminian theology is is a departure from Arminius and classical Arminianism itself. It is. It's, yeah. A lot of your people who claim to be Wesleyan Arminian, especially like Wesleyan Arminian mm -hmm. Pentecostals, they run from pen penal satisfaction, run from it. They believe it's too archaic. They believe it's too, well, if you look at what Irenaeus said, that Christ was offered to Satan to satisfy Satan, that's the most archaic thing I think I've ever heard. As we explained earlier, this isn't an archaic view. This is the decision of the Godhead for the purpose of the Son, Jesus Christ. Right. And Christ joyfully and gladly and humbly surrendered to that purpose.
Well, friends, we've enjoyed this episode. This is one of our th- favorite things to talk about. I'm glad you guys have listened. Yet again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Continue to share it with your friends. Share it on Facebook. You know, do whatever you can. We really want this audience to grow. And Colt, would you please read our closing scriptures, please? Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.